Welcome back, Ray Levens. I know money and banking was a, a bit heavy, can I say? You know, an hour and a half podcast is not a joke. It normally takes me about three weeks to teach that lesson at school or to finish that chapter at school. The last chapter for the term, but it won't be the last chapter per se because we are going to attempt to finish the year syllabus. But we have one chapter left. Technically, it falls in term three's work. So when you do write your term test for the term, it will only cover topic one to four in term three. After this next chapter, we'll be starting with term four, topic one, and then we have two chapters left. The last chapter, we'll be looking at economic growth and development, a South African perspective, and the roles that Africa plays with regards to the development of Africa. We will be considering and comparing economic and social indicators and we'll also be considering the economic integration of South Africa and many other African countries. South Africa does play a very important role in the rest of Africa, and this should not be underestimated. Just to, to, couple of, to, to mention a couple of reasons why we are of such importance. South Africa has a responsibility to the continent. Many other African countries supported the ANC during the apartheid struggle. And they housed them across the borders and helped them with uh, training and military supplies. Mentioning that military supplies, but we didn't have a war. And that's another reason why Africa is very important. Because if you look at Africa itself's history, it, it, it's a picture of war, ill health, corruption, abuse, crime and poverty. So Africa, even though we suffer from a couple of those aspects, we are an ex- uh, ex- experience uh, or an example of how international negotiations and agreements can serve as an example in resolving conflicts because we are the only country, one of the few countries in the world that actually managed to end a traumatic experience like apartheid without civil war. Almost any other country in the world has experienced a civil war, which is a, a feather in a cap of uh, our politicians of 1994 and pre-1994. And so Africa recognizes that its political and economic success depends on the success of the rest of Africa. We are going to have to help and develop each other with that regards. Now, looking at economic indicators of South Africa compared to to other countries, uh, African countries on average has got a much higher growth, natural growth rate. We're talking about population numbers with regards um, when you compare to developed countries. Most developing countries, if you look at families, two kids, three kids is a very big family, but in African countries, population growth is still much higher than developed countries. And as a result, it, it does lead to poverty, especially if you have countries where there's high unemployment rate because these children just become a burden on their parents and on the government. And it's difficult to support and deliver social services to so many people. Now, the consequence of having high population growth numbers is that if your population grows at a faster rate than your than your economy, your per capita income, your per capita GDP per person is actually decreasing. That literally means, according to statistics, you'll have lower standard of living and more poor people. Education, when families are large and income is low, you won't be able to provide for uh, proper education for your learners, and that will then directly affect their prospects in the job market one day. Poor health, women that have many children are exposed to many health risks related to the pregnancies 
and having many children in a short space of time has been shown to play a part in reduced birth weight and uh, babies increase in child mortality. That's quite an interesting fact, eh? Increase in poverty levels as the population growth continues to rise. It puts pressure on the government and developing countries that do not produ produce enough food as is is just placed under even more strain. Can you imagine a country that is struggling with food production and then on top of that they've got high population growth? It, it's, it's just a recipe for disaster. And then the environment itself. Population growth place a strain on the environment because all these people needs have to be catered for and thus air pollution and urban congestion just becomes worse with the population increasing numbers. The infrastructure, South Africa uh, has some of the most developed infrastructure in Africa and this gives us an economic advantage over other other poorer countries and that you get your economic infrastructure, which is your transport and communication and power generation and sanitation. And then you have your social infrastructure, which is your educational facilities, healthcare, cultural and recreational. Now we are well endowed when it comes to those features. I do believe that we, we have the infrastructure, we just do not have the people and the skills to make a complete success of those infrastructure facilities. Production. Now, I'll just mention that many African countries, and this is also a part as a result of, of globalization and global warming, uh, developed countries are mass producing and thus polluting. And the pollution doesn't just stay there. The whole world's affected by the pollution. And that's why we have the changing climate patterns that we can see happening all around us. Now, with regards to production, this refers to the process of making goods and providing services in order to satisfy people's wants and needs. Now, in 2009, the level of production in, in, in Africa was, was generally poor, and it still is today. And they tend to depend on, on, on support from the UN and other African countries, which is not sustainable. I Recently, Donald Trump stated that he's going to cut off the support to African countries like Zimbabwe and those countries. It's just not sustainable to assume that developed countries will continue supporting poor African countries for forever and it's also linked to low productivity in African countries maybe the result of poor infrastructure development lack of skills to do poor education and ongoing conflicts and the availability of land in agricultural production and this is closely linked to the the first chapter we actually studied in this term we looked at the characteristics of developing countries you can hear it came out strongly there many African countries are struggling with produ uh, production because of low productivity, and the low productivity is caused by lack of infrastructure, low skills, poor education, and continued conflicts with government in other countries. Now, all this will then relate to a lack of poverty and wealth. And when you suffer from poverty, it means you're excluded from economic activities. And we all know by now that the economic system is very unforgiving. It only awards people that, that has access to it. And if you don't have access to economic activities, you, you are literally going to be left out in the cold physically and, and emotionally because you will not be able to cater for your your demands and needs and you'll be able to look after your family and this will probably result in in the poverty trap and result in further uh, lower education levels because when you're suffering from malnutrition you can't be educated properly properly it will also probably lead to increased uh, increased crime levels which is which is quite sad now all this needs to be financed and the government, the government tries their best, and South Africa, 
I, I do believe we're on a ticking time bomb because we are one of the few countries where the minority supports the majority. We only have about a tax base of between 15 and, and 20 million people and we have 57 million people in the country. You, you can just, you can just, uh, you don't have to do the math actually. You can just hear from that numbers that that, that is a problem, that 20 million people's tax money is trying to cater for 57 million people. Now, government doesn't just rely on tax money. They also can get loans, which I'm not a big fan of because if you take out loans, you have to pay it back with interest. They can get donations. It's just been uh, published recently that all uh, governments parties like the ANC, the EFF and DA has to uh, how can I say, publicize where they obtain their donations from. It's administrative income, that's when they, they charge services for, for roads like toll fees and charges uh, customers, uh, customers you can say uh, the municipalities charges its citizens for uh, garbage removal, sanitation, water availability and those things that's examples of administrative income you have your commercial income government owns numerous lands and plots which they rent out and then there's obviously the income from uh, taxes so those are all the forms of of government revenue now those forms of revenue are obviously under a lot of strain in other african countries because african countries that have a poor economic growth won't qualify for loans um the donations come in the form of uh, foreign aid, which is also busy drying up, and with uh, not a few, not a lot of taxpayers, you can't expect a lot of administrative income. For any country to be competitive in modern times, they have to take take part in international trade. Now, South Africa has got major trading agreements with uh, other African countries in in and around South Africa, uh, all up to to the to the far north. Most of the African countries are part of the the SADC. Now, there, there are three types of trade. Obviously, you're looking at exports and imports, and then you're looking at uh, the, the use of services, either we providing other countries of services or they or they providing us of services. Now, if you have a strong relationship with other African countries and you trade extensively with them, you will build a very mutually beneficial relationship. Now, increasingly, production is becoming globally integrated, and South Africa forms a vital part of international supply chains. Therefore, removing barriers like red tape, administrative burdens, is very important in enhancing the this link to economic growth. Now, to promote these international agreements and trade between African countries, uh, so Africa was had an integral part in establishing NEPAD, that's a new partnership for Africa's development, and they trade with many African countries, and it has increased drastically since 1994. And um, so Africa is also part of this African Development Community. That's the SADC I mentioned uh, earlier. And it must it must be noted that since we've started the SADC, we've exported goods worth more than 44 billion rand, and we've imported goods almost to the value of 24 billion rand. Now, to be order in, in order to trade effectively and trade with not just African countries but internationally, you have to have economic freedom and you have to have fair competition most african countries were colonized so they're still recovering and actually finding their own if i can say niche market niche market but still finding the most effective production technique that works for them as african countries for example democratic of congo was only um, decolonized in 1992 when belgium left so africa was uh, 
decolonized uh, in 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 the early 19s, but uh, then it was became a de- de- democratic republic. But then the apartheid was installed. So even after that, it's only been 20 years or 24 years or or so that uh, South Africa has also been trading fully without any segregation in its own country. So there's a lot of work to be done. But now, what is economic freedom and in free competition? Now the importance of economic freedom in developing countries is important because it number one it will lead to it will lead to high income it can lower the level of poverty it can reduce unemployment levels it will increase life expectancy and contributes to a cleaner safer and more sustainable environment if your economic freedom is used correctly that has to also be mentioned now do you measure this economic freedom well you'll take a look at uh, the access to money and capital the country has how many people are willing to invest in these countries the freedom to trade internationally, which we do, regulations for granting credit, credit. we've got very good uh, regulatory uh, systems in place for granting credit and receiving credit, legal structures and protection of property rights, that's a, that's a sensitive one at the moment, we're looking at land expropriation without compensation, but we've got a, the judiciary, that's none to other, we have got a very strong uh, court system, and a very strong constitutional court. Our constitutional court has even found against our own president. And recently, recently in 2018, now in August, it has also found that the appointment of our NPA, the National Prosecuting Authority, the head of the NPA, was un- unconstitutional. Because so our courts work. And then lastly, the size of government based on expenditure and taxes. Now. We tick all those boxes. It was just to mention, I do have a problem with that last one. Our government is way oversized, and I'm talking about our parliament. If you compare us to most developed countries, we've got a bigger government than America. And America has got much more citizens than South Africa. So we do have a problem there, and that does put a strain on taxpayers' money if you have such a bloated government that you have to pay salaries. Now, moving on from the economic indicators, we'll be considering some of the, the, the social social indicators when you compare South Africa to other African countries. And let's first of all consider poverty and wealth. Now, the poverty is when people are living on less than, I think it might be $2 a day. Actually, it's less than $2 a day. It might be, might be $1.30 a day basically just below 20 rand people living on 20 rand a day and then basically you can't satisfy your basic needs and wants and a lot of things causes poverty but the main things are uh, lack of employment opportunities lack of proper education and poor economic conditions now so South Africa just like other African countries we've got a massive problem with poverty we've got about 20 million people that live in poverty now if you're looking at a country with 57 million people that is a very shocking statistic now a key problem is uh, there's an equal distribution of, of wealth. Now, it, it must be said that, yes, the apartheid legacy did play its part, but it has to be mentioned out that that that, that gap in income inequality, it was exaggerated during during apartheid because many, many people weren't offered the same economic opportunities. So that gap is still there and actually has, in fact, been widening over the years. If you look at statistics between 1996 and 2009, the inequality gap has actually actually been getting bigger. Now, th- another problem is, like South Africa is endowed with so many mineral resources, gold, diamonds, platinum, coal, the list goes on. But we don't always have the skills to, to process and take advantage of these resources. 
And that basically means we didn't benefit fully from our own riches. And on top of that, many of these resources are controlled by private companies. And then the government don't control the resources and therefore they don't benefit fully from them. I just want to stop right there. In essence, that's correct. But it must be mentioned, mentioned and I'm going to be personally honest, I, I don't feel comfortable um, handing over the keys to our banks and to our gold mines and to our, our diamond mines and platinum mines over to government. I'll be completely honest. If you look at the government's track record, if you look at unemployment rates, if you look at service delivery, if you look at the state of the healthcare system, if you look at the state of the education system, if you look at the state of SAA, if you look at the state of ESCOM, if you look at the state of Transnet, come on people, it's quite obvious that those SOEEs and other functions of government has been run and handled very poorly. So I really much prefer our resources for the time being to be in control of private companies. Now many other other African countries face the same fate. An example is Congo, when um, Belgium left at the end of 1991 and Congo became the Democratic Republic of Congo, a uh, civil war broke out the very next year. And since then, three million people have died. Because it's literally a war over the resources. The South African, South African government has actually started a war on poverty campaign, which is a, a very, very nice gesture. Now, those anti-poverty strategies focus on enabling and empowering households to lift themselves out of poverty. Now, I like that we have to find uh, systems that will enable people to get themselves out of poverty and not be dependent on government. We have to create more economic opportunities. We have to invest in human resources, that's education. We have to promote social inclusion, promote good governance, provide income security to the most vulnerable people, we have to promote environmental sustainability. We have to provide social wages, such as subsidized electricity, water, sanitation, and we have to provide preventive and curative health care. So those are the main objectives of the War on Poverty campaign. Income distribution, massive problem. We live in one of the most unequal countries in the world when it comes to income distribution. People earning hundreds of thousands of rands a month and people living on 20 rand a day. Uh, and this affects the public and the private sectors. Trade unions have been campaigning against this problem since 1994. Although the situation is better uh, than in some other African countries, there is a likelihood that if it's not addressed, it may cause a civil unrest, which it is, and social and economic instability. But you have to add on to this. Trade unions normally represent the unskilled workforce. And it's very difficult to campaign for a proper living wage for them if they are providing a service that is unskilled and there's a reason why people in unskilled sectors earn very low salaries let me point this out and wages there's an oversupply and if you know anything about the labor market or anything about a product if there's an oversupply of a product per se you all know the prices drop quite drastically right because there's an abundance of it available so the same works with the labor market if there's an oversupply of unskilled labor labor wages will drop and if you place too much pressure on companies to increase those wage rates, it might actually lead to unemployment because they might then employ, or if you can link it to the circular flow, purchase less factors of production, and one of them is labor. Now the next social indicator we will be taking a look at is urbanization. The urbanization can be defined as the amount of people that leave rural areas and move to the main cities, most likely in, in looking for better, better employment opportunities. 
Now, South African cities and towns have grown at a faster rate than those in other African countries. That's, that's important to note. I have to jump back to uh, Republic of Congo. It's important to note they've got about 78 million people and only about 40% of those people live in urban areas. South Africa is on the other side of the coin. We are mostly urbanized, but we have urbanized so quickly that we've been struggling to keep up with servicing these areas with sanitation, electricity, and water. And if the urban areas have been expanding faster than the economic areas, you can see that will directly, immediately cause structural unemployment because number one, most likely the skills they have is not going to match what we need in those in those um, in those cities because people mostly move to urban areas from rural areas and then normally the education levels aren't that good. And secondly, um, the economy doesn't have time to expand and create more opportunities for all these people moving to urban areas. Now in South Africa, the reasons for urbanization were basically as follows. Uh, urbanization and the accompanying migration patterns are closely associated with economic development in the country. Any area that develops quickly is likely to attract people from rural areas for economic opportunities. Secondly, most factories that are major markets for rural communities are found in the cities. Thirdly, most important quality services are found in the cities. Examples are universities, better transport facilities, and better healthcare facilities, all available in cities. Then there are more employment opportunities in cities. And lastly, there are more recreational facilities. When you're talking about recreational, you're talking about enjoyment, uh, events, outings, things that uh, attract people uh, for social reasons of um, are abundant quantities in the cities. The next social indicator is HIV and AIDS. Now, South Africa is the leader in the world in this department. We have got the most people in the world as a country that is diagnosed with HIV and AIDS. South Africa is burdened with many diseases and some of the biggest problems we have is HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis, maternal and child infant immortality and non-communicable diseases have a great impact on the country's economy. Now, South Africa is, is one of the highest rates of TB in the world. And uh, other diseases is high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic heart disease, chronic lung diseases, cancer, and mental illness. In 2004, these diseases afflicted 28% of the population in the country. People, that is a mind-numbing statistic. 28%. Maternal infant mortality rates in South Africa are much higher than those in countries of similar socio-economic development. So basically, we've got a lot of lot more children dying before the age of one than other countries that are in a similar development stage as us. And our maternal, maternal mortality in our country has increased quite dramatically. This is linked to HIV and AIDS. Now, Africa's in in general, we all suffer suffer from that problem. We've got a massive AIDS burden burden, and we should be focusing on focusing on really trying to educate the people on the dangers of AIDS and how it is picked up because I don't think many communities, when you're in communities where education levels are not not very high, you'll have a lot of confusion when it comes to these diseases. Now, to give you an example, not AIDS-related, but but pregnancy-related. About about eight years ago, they had an article in, in the Herald 
they interviewed girls at Dora and Ginza that were waiting for to have an abortion. And they actually asked these young girls, how could they have prevented the pregnancy? And the girls said things like, uh, you can use contraceptives like condoms and birth controls. You can abstain. And I kid you not, some of those girls actually mentioned abortion. They refer to abortion as a method of preventing pregnancy. Yes, it sounds ridiculous to any person educated, but that is just what it is. If you're not educated on these factors, you won't know how it can impact your life. Now, it's a major challenge in every developed country to try and tackle this AIDS problem. And many of these countries have poor health facilities and find it very difficult to, to fight the widespread spread of AIDS. In an effort to, to fight this endemic, this African government, through the Department of Social Development, works with national and international organizations that are involved in fighting AIDS. And there's a couple of organizations. It's please important to note that you have to know some of these. Which organizations are involved in fighting AIDS? You've got your NGOs, that's your non-government governmental organizations. You've got your CBOs, that's your community-based organizations. You've got your FBOs, that's your faith-based organizations, that's your churches. You've got your business sector, volunteers, and international agencies. So there's a lot of role players involved in trying to fight this endemic. This is African government has suggested key priorities to tackle these problems. They want to prevent transmission. They want to treat and care and support people that have contracted HIV and AIDS. They want to monitor and do research on the situation and they want to focus on people's human rights, rights and access to justice. Because a big problem about HIV um, contraction is it sometimes only also happens through, through rape cases, which is very, very sad. So we spend uh, quite a lot of time here on, on AIDS and that is directly linked to the next social indicator, which is National health insurance, it was in the paper about a month ago that the government has, has finally decided they're going to push through the national health insurance scheme where everyone will be, will be uh, able to access this and it will be funded through taxpayers' money. Now, there's a, a lot of discussions and a lot of debates going on about how it will be funded, that it's unsustainable, but all of that apart, we do have a serious problem. Okay. Private healthcare is very expensive. Only a small portion of the country has access to private healthcare. And this is, that just includes quality doctors and nurses and, and surgical procedures. You, you're looking at the quality of life. Just let me give you an example. About two years ago, they decided that inoculations for babies will not be free. Oh, sorry, it is still free, but it won't be available at private clinics. You used to be able to go to a private clinic and get an inoculation for your baby. And being a teacher and, uh, and my wife being in a, in a middle class middle class type of earning uh, job, the in some inoculations were very expensive. So we just decided, being open-minded Africans, that we are going to go to private clinics. And it is quite frustrating for me to think that just the idea of me going to a clinic, it actually means I have to take a day off work because you have to be there almost an hour before the clinic opens up to get first in line. And then the process only starts operating, the pleasant starts operating at about 9 o'clock. And then you only probably get called up at about like 11 o'clock. And by the time you get out, it's almost 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then when you leave, there are still rows and rows of people waiting. So it's literally a whole day out of your life. Now, I would love to know how much productivity gets lost through that. So you go to a private clinic, you walk in, maybe wait. 20 minutes is a long wait. 
you get your injection, you're out of there within half an hour, you can go back to work. So I can understand the concept be- behind the National Health Insurance Scheme because there's just too many people trying to access the public health care system. Now don't get me wrong, the government can't use that as a scapegoat. Their service delivery is absolutely poor. They've done not done enough to ensure they've got quality people working in those professions. And it comes down to financial reward. And not only that, you can speak about teachers as well. Not just financial reward, it's about giving the people that work for you the resources that they need. If you put me in a classroom and you don't give me a chalkboard or a laptop or a projector or a textbook, let's be honest, how motivated am I going to be to teach? The same goes for nurses and doctors. So I understand what they're trying to get at, but just the quality of the healthcare system, it just it tends, it makes me t- tend to think that they're just trying to, to to pass the buck over to the private healthcare system. Uh, sorry, to the private healthcare system because their service delivery has just been abysmal up to date. Now, what are some of the principles of the national health insurance scheme? Okay, it's the w- w- what are some of their main thoughts? So they want to provide improved access to to health services. They want to create a single health fund which will promote equity and social solidarity i have to agree with that they want to obtain services on behalf of the entire population and organize and control this financial resources i'm very skeptical about that our government does tend to have a little bit of green fingers i'm very worried about where all that money is going to go and this will prevent uh, prevent the increases in the cost of medical schemes now that part i'm very excited about they actually came out and said they're going to cap medical funds for, for co-payments, there's going to be no more co-payments, and I'm very excited about that. And they want to strengthen the undersourced public healthcare sector. Now, I would love to know how including the private hospitals into the national healthcare system will strengthen the under-resourced public healthcare. Do they mean it in a sense like less people will will use their facilities, so there'll be there will be a smaller burden on them? Okay, but we'll we'll have to wait and see on that. So you can see if, from my opinions, uh, I'm on the fence when it comes to the national healthcare system, but time will tell what it holds in for for uh, our citizens. Education, 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 education. You would now listen to this podcast. I always refer to education as the saving grace that will remove the shackles of inequality. Now, a lot can be said about the quality of education in this country, you listen to this podcast, you are exposed to, we don't want to blow smoke, blow smoke up our own backsides, but you, you are exposed to, to quality education. Uh, I'm just talking about economics. To give an example, your teachers in the classroom, they've got technological devices, they've got the content knowledge, and experience comes of time for any teacher, but you also have the ability to listen to a podcast. Now, that's not something that is readily available in all South African schools. Just to give you an example of uh, the, the gap that still exists between between certain schools. We've got some of the poorest pass rates in the world. We are second last in the world in math and science. Now, I said I sound like a broken record. I've mentioned it so many times. That is how, how intimidated I am, actually, if I can say like that, by that statistic. What are we going to do about that? If you remain second last in math and science, it means you're going to remain second last in development and economic prosperity. It's as simple as that. Because you you need to 
you need to create products and I'm referring to you as learners now as products that will be able to compete on an international level so how do you compete internationally if you're second last in the world in in math and science all right now I got a little sidetracked there I apologize now the level of education in most African countries are, are very low education in Africa has been through different stages of transformation our education system has improved from the old Bantu education system that is correct everyone is now uh, how can I say included in caps most children in developing countries do not have access to quality education some children who go to school cannot complete the education there's a lack of money and uh, there's overcrowding in classrooms many adults in developing countries are still illiterate and can't even read and write South Africa has an important as an important destination for students from other African countries who would like to further their studies and develop their skills and economic opportunities that said, listen to that last fact. That's correct. We've got some of the poorest education results in the world, okay, when it comes to our secondary education. But many other African students come and study in South Africa. We've got excellent tertiary institutions, and yes, they've also been a little bit vulnerable the last couple of years, especially with the, the Fees Must Falls campaign. But we, we, have, we are internationally recognized as a destination that has very strong university. Now the reasons why students in many developing countries cannot complete their studies are funds, high poverty levels, high unemployment levels, lack of educational facilities, the movement of parents from one country to another, migration, and a lack of access to a lack of access due to discrimination and conflict. Those are big barriers to proper education. And then the last social indicator we'll be, be touching on is something that you are well aware of. It is marginalized people you know the marginalized people include poor people children with special needs orphans and vulnerable children young girls and women rural inhabitants old people and people with disabilities marginalization is all these people that are normally excluded first out of economic opportunities okay to give you an example old people tend to be excluded because they're not seen as productive anymore young kids that that don't have quality quality uh care the parents are the parents have abandoned them or the parents have, have moved and live in different locations uh, they can't take part in economic activities people with special needs can't take part so that's why they are referred to as marginalized groups now what are the effects of being marginalized you will always struggle to find a job you'll be stuck in the poverty trap poverty trap referring to you being poor and then you stay in a poor area and you end up marrying a poor girl and you end up having kids that are poor and then they stay in the same trap you've got a risk of becoming uh, enslaved which I hope is not the case and slavery has been abolished but you also most probably have a lack of education so that is the problem of marginalized people and that is a massive problem faced in every single African country that you can mention now the last unit of this chapter is probably the most important important section of the work it deals with the economic integration and cooperation so what we spoke about some of the economic and social problems faced by South Africa and other African countries now what has been done what have we done to try and solve the economic and social problems that we have let's get into it we've got the South African Customs Union that's SACU the South African Customs Union is the oldest customs union in the world South Africa has a trade agreement with Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, Swaziland, 
through the SACU to maintain free interchange of goods and services. This means we can export to, for example, Botswana, and we won't get charged uh, tariffs and custom duties, which would make our product more competitive and increase our sales, and vice versa. If a country like Namibia export goods to South Africa, we don't charge them customers and tariffs to make their product more competitive in our country and hopefully increase demand. This means they'll increase their sales, it'll increase their production and increase their economic activity. There we go. So these countries apply the same customs and excise legislation with each other. The same rates of customs and excise duties if they charge it gets charged on important exported goods and also have a common external tariff like if they do charge tariffs they'll charge the same tariff this union meets once a year to discuss these agreements very effective the three committees that fall under the the saku are the customs technical lia liaison committee the trade and industry liaison committee and the ad hoc subcommittee on agriculture what are some of the main goals of saku they want to promote the integration of its members into the global economy, to want to promote the movement of goods between these countries, to want to promote fair sharing of revenue, customs and excise duties, to want to promote fair competition and increase investments, and they want to promote the development of common policies and strategies. I am much for this type of agreement between African countries, because the only way we can be able to compete internationally if we first help each other and then be able to compete on a global, on a global scale. The next initiative or, or agreement that we have is the SADC, the South African Development Community. It has been in existence since 1980. It's been a, a long-standing, long-standing community. Its aim is to coordinate development projects and development and cooperation and integration of economic activities in the Southern African region. So if you look at Africa, SADC is now more focused on the, the southern side of, of the country. And when the SADC was formed, it had to confront political and social economic challenges such as lack of development, poor cooperation between countries, and poor, poor infrastructure. The South African government is committed to development in southern Africa that combines trade with infrastructure development. So we actually invest in infrastructure projects in those countries. The following countries, and please don't get confused now, I just mentioned countries that belong to SACU, these are the countries that belong to the SADC. Go and listen to it again so you don't get confused. The SADC countries are Angola, Botswana, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Lesotho, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Seychelles, South Africa, Swaziland, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Yes, those are a lot of countries. But the beautiful thing about a podcast is you can pause it, go back, listen to it until you've knotted down all those countries. So regardless of the challenges that these countries face, South Africa supports them. Obviously, if there's massive civil unrest, South Africa will try and get involved and negotiate and, and give recommendations. But the, the main goal here is to, is to support each other. Then a big goal and a, and a big bone of contention for African countries is water resources. The most of Africa suffers from droughts. So water is essential resource when it comes to life and economics. It's used for drinking, industry, transport, agriculture, energy. Your, your economy can't function without water. The shortage of water in African countries is a major concern, 
and South Africa has signed agreements of cooperation with a number of African countries. Examples are Mozambique and Swaziland, that's the Inkomati and Maputo rivers. We focus on that and there's agreements in maintaining those rivers. Botswana, Lesotho and Namibia, the establishment of the Orange Senku River Commission. Botswana, Zimbabwe and Mozambique, the establishment of the Limpopo Watercourse Commission. In Lesotho, we have the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. And in Swaziland, we've got the Komati River Development Project. So those projects are aimed at developing and maintaining certain water resources. So after water, also transport. Transport is very important. And because Africa is such a poor country, we mostly rely on road networks. Now it must be noticed that Africa is one of the most developed road networks in the world. We are actually in the top 10 when it comes to our road networks because we didn't have, people don't have money to fly and to, to do ships. Now, the South African government provides major transport links with other countries in the SADC region. We've actually invested and built roads into other African countries. Now, most countries in this region depend heavily on South Africa for transport. The South African Department of Transport contributes actively to NEPAD and the SADC in goals in promoting efficient and effective transport services, passenger rail system integration, also focus on getting um, railway networks into Africa, and the road system development and infrastructure maintenance, including bridges and roads and border crossings. Okay, so transport is, transport is, it's actually been actually referred to as the backbone of any economy. In South Africa, that's definitely the case. And you can look at energy. We've got uh, we've got ESCOM supplying electricity, and South Africa actually supplies electricity to some some other countries. But it must be mentioned that some other countries also supply energy to us. Now I do not want to be want to be incorrect here. I don't know why I want to say why I want to say Mozambique. I think Mozambique generates a lot of hydroelectricity from the from the Maluti Mountains. Now please, the Maluti Maluti Mountains. I hope it's in Mozambique. I think it's in Mozambique. I might be under correction. But they also supply South Africa. So one of the African countries also supplies South Africa with hydroelectricity. Agriculture. Why would we want to focus on this? Because most African countries are still dependent on their primary sector. Okay. But there's not enough food being produced. Reasons for low production include lack of skills, unavailability of land, and a lack of technology. In the attempt to address this, the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries continues to analyze international trade policies and advises the government on multilateral and bilateral cultural trade policies. Now you're probably wondering what is a multilateral agreement? Let me quickly explain. A multilateral agreement is when there's a Okay, we're referring to agriculture here, when there's an agricultural agreement made on certain farming techniques or procedures, and it's normally agreed upon by three or more parties. So it's multilateral. There's three or more parties or governments involved. And bilateral, you're looking at more specifically two countries or two parties or two, two governments that have decided on a specific agreement regarding agriculture. And then um, tourism. Personally for me, Tourism is the future for Africa. Because tourism, in a way, I, I would want to say it's easy. Because we have, we have the natural beauty. And people want to see animals, 
and rivers and mountains and oceans and we have all of those and it it's not heavily reliant on your natural resources meaning that yes you're gonna have to use them to to expose the tourists to them but you don't have to cultivate it and and use it all you have to do is maintain it so basically preservation can be implemented here so if tourism can be developed i think africa will be definitely be be one of the economic powers of the world so africa is very reliant on the tourism industry so we also actually focus through the department of tourism we focus on increasing the duration tourists stay in the country we want to increase the spending by tourists because obviously that contributes to gdp we want to ensure that tourists travel throughout the country see as much as possible and then facilitate the transformation and be in the local tourism industry because that can also lead then to wealth redistribution and equality now early in this chapter we we did mention NEPAD now NEPAD is the new partnership for Africa's development now please take note there are two big agreements mentioned in in the section of work it's SACU SADC and NEPAD now NEPAD was established to address the development challenges on the African continent only African countries can become members of this institution so it's solely for African countries and our government played a very important role in establishing NEPAD so some of the objectives of NEPAD is to eradicate poverty on the continent, halve the marginalization of Africa with regards to economic activities. And when they say that, I know we've mentioned that marginalized groups are certain groups of people, but when it comes to global economic activities, so Africa is seen as a marginalized group because we are, in a, sen- in, in a sense, excluded from global economic activities. So NEPAD also stri- strives to, to include us in more international economic activities. Grade 11s, that brings us to an end of South Africa's role in Africa. I'll see you for Term 4's work. We've got two chapters left, Globalization and Environmental Sustainability.